Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. This is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry. And it's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. That's the magazine that I edit. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue, we would be delighted to send it to you. Just simply go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. And right there, you can request the latest issue. But today, here on The Profile, I'm speaking to R.C. Sproul Jr. Robert Craig Sproul is the son of another R.C., Robert Charles Sproul, who founded Ligonier Ministries and was a much-loved and well-respected Reformed theologian. Uh, R.C.'s father passed away in December 2017. But R.C. Jr. is my guest on the show today, and he is the author of the newly released Growing Up With R.C., Truths I Learned, about grace, redemption, and the holiness of God. R.C. Jr., welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. I'm happy to be with you today. So uh, the first question we always ask right here on the profile is is very often, tell me about life growing up. Now, obviously, in this case, you grew up in an incredibly uh, (laughs) Christian family, didn't you? (laughs) Well, yeah, uh, I'd love to tell you, but I'd rather you buy the book. (laughs) (laughs) An honest answer. That's what we like here on the show. But, you know, the, the, I, I can tell you this about, uh, in answering that question and about the book, I get, uh, I, I always joke about how my father's most frequent question that he had to deal with was the incredibly difficult, complex, heavy, wavy question, where does evil come from? And uh, the question that I've had to deal with more than anything else was the decidedly not so heavy question, what's it like to have R.C. Sproul as your father? And uh, one of the things that I I always tell people when I'm asked that question is, you know, uh, it was a great blessing to have my father as a father because of the father that he was, not because of the theologian that he was. There were certainly blessings connected to that. But what people are excited about when they think about him uh, is not what blessed me principally. I mean, again, I'm very, very grateful for all that he taught me, but he was a great dad. That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. He was just a great dad, and uh, I had a a very joyful, peaceful, uh, undramatic uh, childhood uh, you know, I, I had multiple conversion experiences. My first was just one night, uh, saying my evening prayers with my mom. And I thought it's, I, I need to confess Christ when I was six years old. And then I had another at, at church camp a few years after that. And, uh, my, my last conversion experience was in high school. Uh, but there was never a time in my life that uh, that I didn't believe that there was a God, that Jesus was his son, that the Bible was his word, that Jesus was raised from the dead, that the way that you have peace with God is by trusting in him. Now, that's, well, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. Uh, my father tells the story uh, back in the early 70s or late 60s, my father was hired as a minister of evangelism 
and uh, education at a large Presbyterian church in Cincinnati, Ohio. And in light of that calling, he traveled down to a not-so-well-known Presbyterian church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, called Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, which had just started a new small ministry called Evangelism Explosion which uh, became the most powerful and successful evangelistic uh, program uh, in America. And it's built on uh, asking folks these two questions. One, are you uh, confident that if you died today, you would go to heaven? And then the second question is, what would you say to God if he said, why should I let you in? So my father went down to get this training, and he came back after getting this training, and he decided to try it out on his five-year-old son, (laughs) me. And he asked me, you know, if you died today, do you think you'd be going to heaven? And I said, yes. And he said, and if God were to ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? And I, I looked at my father like he had to be the, the, the dullest, most ignorant man on the planet. Like, that's an easy question. How dare you ask me such an easy question? And I said, well, uh, because I'm dead. So so there was a time in my life when I believed in justification by death. But in general, my point is that, you know, there was never a time when I thought Christianity was false. There were times when I thought I'm not converted yet. Okay. And that's uh, and that's hence the whole sort of you had a, you talk about having almost, you know, more than one conversion moment. Yes. And that's actually quite a common story for a lot of Christians growing up in a Christian family where maybe it's at a big youth camp or an event or there's a sermon and you find yourself recommitting and going down to the front or putting your hand up or praying the prayer for the 10th, the 20th or the 30th time. I don't yes. know what you make of that looking back as to because some people can be quite critical of that and say, "Well, actually this just needs to be a one-time thing." Or, or do you think no, there is there is a healthy place of kind of recommitment as well? Well, I I think it depends on how you look at it. That is, if you are uh, struggling with insecurity and wrestling with, well, that previous experience wasn't as emotionally powerful as this current experience, and therefore it wasn't real, that's really dangerous, I think. Um, however, you know, my perspective is I don't, I don't know which one was real. I don't know if it was sometime before any of those. I don't know if it was sometime ever. The, the, the idea that I need to be able to pinpoint a time when I move from death to life, I think, is profoundly dangerous. Uh, the, we're not justified by remembering when we were justified. We're justified by resting in the finished work of Christ alone. And if you do that today, it doesn't matter what day was the first day that you did it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so I, 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 I want to, you know, tell the truth in answering the question. But you know, one of the temptations I have in answering the question is, uh, you know, I was raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord from day one, and. Like I said, I never, ever had a moment when I thought it wasn't true. Um, so I, I don't need to figure all that sure. out. All I know yeah, is yeah, I yeah. need Jesus and he saved me. Absolutely. So um, was there ever a, a pressure to follow in your dad's footstep or footsteps or was it very kind of hands off of R.C. Jr. will carve his own path and we don't mind what that is, whether that's ministry or not? Well, you know, it was very much the opposite. It was, it was, I was warned repeatedly, don't do this, don't do this. <laughs> and I, I really wasn't particularly interested in, in doing it. I, I didn't develop an interest in theology itself 
until high school and sort of uh, matched that whole propensity that high school kids love to have arguments and debates. And I was very much into that. Um, but I, I not only debated theological issues, I debated political issues and economics and uh, chose the college that I went to to study economics. Uh, I went on to uh, law school and attended law school for six whole weeks. Uh, <laughs> I have to confess, I thought you were going to say years. <laughs> that was the point, but it was only six weeks. It took me that long to figure out this is not what I want to do. You're just checking I'm still listening, aren't you, by dropping that yeah. in? <laughs> um. And, you know, I almost, you know, fell into the ministry uh, by accident. I, I, I did that six weeks in law school. I did two years uh, in graduate school studying English with the goal of becoming a, an English professor. And at this point, I thought, you know, I know a lot of theology. I bet you I could successfully get a, a graduate degree at seminary easier than any place else. And I moved to Orlando, started working at Ligonier Ministries and attending Reformed Seminary there in Orlando. And, uh, you know, over time got involved, interestingly, with our magazine, Ligonier's magazine, Table Talk. Right. And that was right up my alley in terms of the training that I had as a writer in in the English language and knowing some theology. And I served as the editor of Table Talk for, uh, oh, about 11 or 12 years. And somewhere in the middle of that, I remember sitting at my desk and thinking to myself, just being really bitter and frustrated with. Uh, the weakness of the church and the weakness of pastors. And I'm not sure whether it was the devil or the Holy Spirit, but I had this this internal thought saying, yeah, well, if you think it's so easy, why don't you try it? <laughs> <laughs> and that was the uh, the inward call that I had. Right. I, and I, I, I did think, well, yeah, you do complain a lot, RC. Why don't you find out how difficult or how easy this might be? And uh, that's, really that's interesting. how I ended up yeah. pursuing that's really interesting because I guess I wanted to talk a bit about perceptions around this word reformed because of course both you and your father are well known as being I guess reformed bible teachers and we can talk a bit about what that means but I often find sometimes people have perceptions and there are certain stereotypes over you know exactly what a reformed someone who's reformed their theology what that means because sometimes there's a bit of a negative connotation isn't there about being quite severe and stern and and sometimes yes. even a bit judgmental what do you think about that almost reputation that the word reformed and the category reformed has in some corners of the church. Is there any truth in that? Oh, my stars, yes. <laughs> I think it's generally uh, people are more gracious toward reformed people than they should be. <laughs> I, think, I think we're terrible. And 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 I, I think it's especially true with respect to the hypocrisy that we have in this sense. Um, you know, if you if you wanted to give a, a, a quick 
easy definition of reformed, you could start with the five points of Calvinism. And if you start with the first of the five points of Calvinism, you run into the doctrine of total depravity. So that, that if there's any group inside the evangelical world that supposedly has a deep and abiding commitment to the reality of the depth and the scope of our sin, it would be the reformed. Right. And yet the reformed are the proudest and most arrogant part of the whole of the evangelical church by far. <laughs> that accusation is real. It's true. But it, the irony is it's because the doctrine itself is true. That is, it's because we're totally depraved that even those who know we're totally depraved still manage to become prideful. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and we're prideful because we know we're totally depraved. But, but And that's one of the things that's that's sort of a, a lesson that I'm trying to get through in my book and, and get through in terms of my own experience as well. That is, there's a fundamental difference between affirming the doctrine of the total depravity of man and beating your breast and saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. The first one is profoundly easy. The second one is much more dangerous and scary. Yeah, I and love, true. <laughs> I, I, I'd love to talk. I'd love to talk a bit about how this has been outworked in in your own life. Uh, I yes. mean, one of the questions I like to ask people is, um, "What's been the best day of your ministry, and what's also been the worst?" Hmm. Well, in in terms of public ministry, uh, I would say. Uh, and, and again, it depends on, on on what we mean by best. I can tell you that you know there have been surprising times, especially for a reformed guy, uh, to have people come to me and say, "I came to Christ because of something I read of yours," or "I came to Christ because I heard a, a message that you gave." And you just think, I mean, there's nothing better than that. That's that is just so profoundly exciting mm. to think that the God of heaven and earth would be pleased to use you to bring one of his children into the kingdom. Yeah. Um, and there have been, a, you know, not thousands of those, but there have been a few of those in, in my life that were very, very encouraging. Um, but I, I think the, the, the best answer to your question is that it's actually the same uh, moment, and it's a moment that's actually covered in my book in the introduction. Uh, I think the best day of my uh, spiritual life was the day I woke up in the drunk tank here in Fort Wayne, Indiana, not remembering the previous night because I had had so much to drink and I had been arrested for driving under the influence. Now, uh, the reason that was the worst day should be pretty clear. I mean, it <laughs> was... Sure absolutely humiliating. It was profoundly uh, frightening. Uh, when I came to, as it were, uh, with no memory the night before, I didn't even, I did know that when I had been driving the night before, my two youngest sons were in the car. I didn't know if they were okay. I, you know, I, so much blackness from the moment I got in that car to the moment I woke up in jail just a complete invisible, I don't know what happened. So I didn't know if my boys were okay. In addition, this happened two weeks after I had married my precious wife. 
And I didn't know if she was going to stick with me and didn't, you know, wouldn't blame her if she didn't. And they, uh, you know, the, the introduction to the book begins with the moment when I'm chained to a group of other prisoners and being led into the courtroom and we're, we're all sitting down in the jury box for our arraignments. And in the audience is my wife who, again, we've only been married two weeks and she's there. And she mouths to me, she's not allowed to speak. She probably would have gotten in trouble if they caught her mouthing to me, but she mouthed to me these two things. Uh, one, the boys are fine. And two, I love you. And that was just such a deep, deep uh, relief to me and a picture to me of how my heavenly father saw me. So the reason this was also the best day was because it completely shattered any kind of uh, facade or capacity uh, to pretend that I'm better than I was. Hmm. And one of the blessings of living in a fishbowl, being the son of R.C. Sproul, is you know when your sins get found out, they get found out far and wide. I know at the time, like you say, because of not just because of of your father, but because of who you are as a well-known Christian minister, this this was news. And you know, like you say, this might happen to other Christians, but because they're not in the public eye, it's not it's not reported on, and journalists don't talk about it. Was right. that was that moment when you when you woke up and you talk about it being the best and the worst day, you know, all in one? Was that the moment you realized that you had a, a drinking problem or had you had that realization earlier? Well, honestly, I don't, I still don't know. You know, the, the, the narrative that a person has to have a drinking problem in order to drink too much, I think is false. Uh, I think that anybody could uh, drive, could drink too much and drive, whether it's the first time they've ever had a drink or whether it's the thousandth time. Right. So I don't, I don't, and it's interesting how, again, that, that narrative is out there in the world. R.C. Jr. must be an alcoholic or else this couldn't have happened. Well, I don't think that's true at all. Right. So, you, uh, so for you, you'd say that, that you have never been and are not uh, an alcoholic. You wouldn't kind of use no, those words. No, I wouldn't say that at all. Oh, I would okay. say, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know that even that, ca- if that category is a biblical category. Right. Here's what I do know. I do know that I demonstrated on that night that I shouldn't be trusted with alcohol. And I haven't had a drink since then. Right. Now, I again, this goes to the question of those categories. I, I didn't have any DTs. I didn't have to go through detox. And it wasn't difficult. I just said, okay, you, this is not for you. <laughs> You've got to be done. And it's been not a problem at all. So I, I don't know. I don't need to label. I, I do know this. I do know I drank too much that night. Yeah. I do know I drove that night. And I do know that, again, I, I should not, uh, th- that I need to flee uh, from that because I've not handled it well. Yes. Can, can you help, help uh, people understand who perhaps, you know, if we're, if we're being honest with ourselves at this moment, perhaps help other Christians who can relate to the feeling of 
if I'm honest, there have been times in my life I've had, I have had too much to drink and can completely relate to that, you know, getting drunk. But perhaps we find it harder to relate to than getting in a car because people can think back to times in their lives and think, I've had too much to drink, but I, I would never do that. I would never cross that line. Can you help explain what's, what was going on there in your own head? I mean, do you know for yourself? <laughs> I wish I could, but, but I, I can tell you this. I can tell you uh, that it, my experience has been that a person can drink uh, without falling into any kind of sin at all. A person can drink and get close to whatever this line is of drunkenness and say to themselves, yowza, I better stop. A person can drink and cross the line into drunkenness and say to themselves, I'm drunk. I need to stop drinking. And a person can cross the line and get so far past the line that they don't know how to stop drinking at the, you know, at that moment. They're so drunk that they're not hearing stop drinking. And given that, I think you can be so drunk that you're not hearing don't drive. Now, right, sure. that doesn't change the fact that wherever, whenever you get to those places, you got yourself there. Sure. I'm not, I'm not saying uh, you can't hold me responsible for driving drunk because sure. I was too drunk. Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Uh, I, I just, you know, I, I, I don't, I would have thought I could never do this. And I have no memory again of making the decision to get in that car. Um, but I would tell folks and encourage folks uh, to not. Obviously, I mean, it, this is this is despite the fact that God uses this in a good way. This is just so incredibly destructive. Uh, in my own life. And again, God was gracious, not only in sparing my sons, not only in sparing me, but sparing others as well. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I could have hurt or killed any number of people. Uh, and you, you know, that's just, that's the scary thought. Yeah. I, I guess the, the lesson as well there is, is what you just said about you thought that you wouldn't be capable of that. And it's, it's a sobering thought, isn't it? To think that actually, you know, all of us are sometimes capable or are capable of sins that we can we can lower ourselves into a false sense of security thinking I would never do that and of course uh, like you say any good Calvinist reform person will tell you well total depravity means that actually the truth is you might be capable of greater sin than you might even realize for yourself yes I, yeah I would argue that there is no sin uh, apart from blasphemy of the Holy Spirit uh, that I'm not capable of. And uh, I, I would say that's true of, of not only all people, but all believers as well. So tell me what happened in the in the aftermath of this. I understand that you, you resigned from ministry and I believe you're given a, a one year suspended sentence. So you didn't go to I mean, you could could have faced prison for this, but, but you didn't. So there was the legal implications that the work implications, I guess, of resigning from ministry. But I kind of want to know beyond that. What happened with personal relationships, with friendships, with, I don't know, fellow Christians and um, th their attitudes to you? I imagine you might have had a few phone calls or perhaps a few difficult conversations. What what was the aftermath of this pretty cataclysmic event for you personally? Well, uh, a couple things. 
I need to, it's true that after this happened, uh, I resigned from my role at Legionnaire Ministries and Reformation Bible College. Um, but it's also true, and not a lot of people know this, that before this happened, I had given up my ordination. So this did not happen, you know, while I was serving uh, as a minister or as an elder. Uh, it did happen while I was teaching at a Christian college uh, and working with Ligonier Ministries. Uh you know the the outworking of that included a great deal of encouragement and support and friendship and people contacting me saying hey we're with you and we're behind you and and all of that um, but it also uh, it, it, what here's what happens I'll, I'll give you an illustration um, I was invited uh, a few months ago to speak at a pro-life event, and it was one of the first speaking in invitations I've received since that time. And when that happens, uh, the, my hosts, I can count on uh, my critics contacting my hosts and saying, what are you doing? In fact, I wouldn't be at all surprised if anyone... Uh, knew that you were planning to interview me, that you would get in, you know, warnings about talking with me because of my sin. And that's just, that is profoundly discouraging. And it puts even friends in a difficult place where they, they want to be your friend, but they don't want to get torn down for being your friend. And you don't want to see them get torn down for being your friend. So that's just, it's, it is really difficult and really hard it's really difficult to know that, you know, whenever I show up somewhere, uh, the first thing in people's minds is uh, my legal issues. Um, so, yeah, it's hard. But what it does, what it does is it equips me to minister to people who know they're sinners. I can go and, and, and no one's going to look at me and say, well, he's too good to help me. Uh, no one's going to look at me and say, well, if he knew what I did, he would stay away from me because everybody knows what I did. And that's a real blessing as well. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, and this is The Profile. I'm with you right the way through to five o'clock today as we hear from R.C. Sproul Jr., the son of the late, great, reformed Bible teacher R.C. Sproul. We're going to be hearing more from R.C. Jr. right after this. Believers and non-believers will all be helped, says Tim Keller, a wonderfully clear and accessible case for Christianity from a man who has hosted many of the world's most prominent skeptics and atheists, says Andrew Wilson. Beautifully written, brilliantly argued, will thrill and challenge, says R.T. Kendall. Unbelievable the book by Justin Briley. Download a free chapter and find out how it can help you make the case for Christ. Unbelievablebook.co.uk Do you want to stay informed on the best of what's happening in the UK church today? Premier Christianity magazine is for you. The UK's leading Christian magazine is published every month and features interviews with Christian leaders, in-depth reporting, reviews, columnists, and loads more. And best of all, you can try it for free. 
Head to our website now to request the latest edition worth £5.95, completely free of charge. Visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine, and my guest on the show today is R.C. Sproul Jr. We're hearing in part one about his conviction for drink driving and what he's learnt through that experience. And now in part two, we're going to hear more about R.C.'s life, not just the highs, but many of the lows as well. Let's listen in. I wonder as, as well, you, you, met, you mentioned that before speaking engagements you know you have critics sounds like some fairly well organized critics who will uh, <laughs> who will write in and and try and dissuade people i imagine though that's not i mean you tell me but i imagine that's not just from the the drink driving but your name has been in the news in the past for for other things that have happened in your life that that uh, you know have not reflected well on you i mean the one that that comes to mind is in july 2015 people may remember that uh, there was a website which promoted and really enabled extramarital affairs. A website was called Ashley Madison, and a list of people who had accessed that site was made public. And your name was was on that list of of, uh, of names that had visited that site. And you very quickly, I think within a month, had, had come out publicly and explained that, yes, you had visited it, and yes, you were wrong to do so. You hadn't followed through on that. You had not had an affair. You had been faithful to your wife. Nevertheless, of course, your name is now... I guess associated with that whole scandal of the Ashley Madison list of names that came out of people who accessed that site. So, I mean, in, in that sense, there's more than one thing going on here, isn't there? When, oh, yes. Yes. when when critics sort of when your critics have their uh, their list of reasons why they feel like, I guess, frankly, some people feel like you're disqualified from ministry. Well, and that's and there's a sense in which I don't blame them whatsoever. Um, you know, I I want to have the position that I don't be the one to decide if and when I should be back in a position of ministry. The challenge is that people aren't, (laughs) it's not people who are saying, hey, RC, we're not sure you should be in a position of ministry uh, right now. The challenge is people who say, RC, you need to crawl under a rock and disappear. Right. Uh, You know, I've had people, uh, Old old friends contacted me saying, "Hey, you need to, you need to stay out of ministry. You need to stay out of ministry. You need to stay out of ministry." And I've gone back and said, "What what ministry is it you think I'm doing?" And I get, uh, "Well, hey, you're uh, you're teaching a Bible study." Well, that's true. I do teach a Bible study, and I've taught Bible studies for years, long before I was ever ordained. And the world is full of people who teach Bible studies who are not ministers of the gospel. You uh, tweet. Yes, I do tweet. And I've got, <laughs> I tweet uh, I, what I, thoughts I think are helpful for people. But the world is full of tweeters who are not ordained. I've written a book, a biographical book. Again, even even the question of having Tullian Chavidi and writing the forward to it. He shouldn't be back in ministry. He's not back in ministry. He wrote a forward to a book. Right, yeah. <laughs> and so it's like... Again, they, they, they want you to completely and utterly disappear. 
Wow. I guess that's diff- it's difficult, isn't it? In this, you mentioned tweeting, in this, um, in this day and age where actually a huge amount of our lives are lived online and everything we do online is public. It does, as you say, beg the question of, well, what, you know, so much of my life is, is public. What does even retiring from public ministry look like? Because like you say, uh-huh. you might stand down from your church or you might stop um, writing Christian books, let's say. But if you have a Twitter account, is that a gray area? I don't know. Well, I, I think so. And I, again, I think writing, uh, writing any book, I mean, we have such a low ecclesiology where we, and a low view of what preaching is, a low view of the office of elder, that we think that anything that's Christian-y, uh, <laughs> you know, is, is not, uh, well, is ministry. Is ministry, is, is, yes. Well, I've, I have to confess I've used the term like that already in this conversation because I think yeah. that is that is how people view it. Like you say, if you are a prominent Christian online or if you've written books or if you do interviews like this, that is a form of ministry. But you would say you'd want to draw a distinction and say, actually, you wouldn't use the word ministry for that? Well, I would say I don't, I don't mind using the word ministry, but it's not ordained ministry. It's not me uh, serving as a pastor. It's not me leading a church. It's none of those things, sure. and uh, it's you know what I may be disqualified from is not human life. It's not writing books. Right. It's not t- tweeting. It's not doing interviews. It's not helping people. You know, if ministry is service, and it is, uh, then it seems to me that I'm supposed to be serving in some way or another, but you know, not serving as a minister of a local church. I think you said a moment ago that it, it wasn't up to you sort of where and when you would go back into that kind of ministry. And I believe you were hinting at kind of accountability and maybe referring yourself to others who can say, you know, this thing has happened in your life. Here's a kind of restorative process or here's something we want to go with you as almost as a process of repentance. I mean, plenty of churches would use this sort of language and way of talking about things. So how has that been outworked in your, in your life with others around you? Has there been that sort of a process? Cause you hear people talk, don't you about, well, we're going to restore this person or there's a process of repentance, but often we don't talk back in, in detail of what actually does that look like? Well, I, I think there's a lot of uh, uncertainty and ambiguity about what that looks like. And, and there, again, there have been um, uh, on, on the internet with the attack blogs, uh, accusations against me that I have uh, fled such a process, which is again, just flat, not true. Uh, as I mentioned, um, I was, out of the ministry before this scandal happened. That doesn't mean I was out from under authority. I was a member in good standing of a church, and that church had elders who had spiritual authority over me. And when I got my DUI and I was on the phone with my pastor and and, and dealing with that, my elders uh, rightly understood that it was right for me to make uh, repentance uh, to the congregation where I was a member. And they gave me a, a rebuke and an admonition, and they affirmed their forgiveness of me. Now, uh, that, in my judgment, not necessarily in terms of being ordained again, but in terms of uh, the process of repentance, that should be the end of it. But what happens, and this is really frustrating, what happens is, in order for a particular person 
to believe that I am repentant and accept my repentance, they want to see me cry all over again as if it just happened. They don't believe, I mean, and they want me to come to them, particularly again, when you have this public visibility. I repented, rightfully so. I needed to repent. I was, I was, I sinned grievously, and I did. I brought shame upon the Church of Christ, and I went to my elders and said, "Please forgive me. This was wrong," and they forgave me. And you know, now I live in the glory of the forgiveness that I have in Christ, and people want to drag me back to a world where that hasn't happened. Now, again, I'm not saying that people have an obligation to let me into their uh, public world. I'm not saying people have to follow me on Twitter. I'm not saying people have to buy my book. I'm not saying any of that. What I am saying is uh, my repentance is judged by the people who have spiritual oversight and authority over me. And that was the elders of my Presbyterian church. And they affirmed my repentance and my forgiveness. Let's take, you know, if, if you want to talk about a process, uh, you know, the fact that I have not had uh, a drink since that night, which was about two and a half years ago, uh, to me is, you know, part of what works fitting uh, for repentance are. The problem is, how do I prove that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I I can't. There's just no way for me to be able to prove that. It's true, but, uh, and certainly no one can disprove it because it's true, but I can't prove that. I can't prove how many tears I shed. I can't prove how long I pled in prayer for God's grace and God's forgiveness. I can't do any of that. And the idea you know, that I have to do the Christian equivalent of going on the Oprah Winfrey show and sitting on her couch and cry in order to have public forgiveness is just foolish. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a very difficult issue for sure. And I think, um, it is. And I I don't want to, I don't want to come off like I'm, I'm angry at, at folks. I'm, I'm just trying to help people understand that, and and this is part of what's coming through in the book as well, that that the idea that you can watch via the internet someone's life yeah. and draw conclusions yeah. is just profoundly dangerous. Mm. I'd hope everyone, including your critics, could could agree on that point. I mean, we're we're still figuring out, aren't we, as Christians, what it means to live in this age where you're quite right. You can't make a judgment on someone's life based on what you read about them on the internet. And yet the fact is so many of us do fall into that trap. And it does seem to me just in general that the more faceless the communication is, the more irate and angry people get. I mean, you don't have to spend too long on places like YouTube or um, just websites with comment sections. See, people getting very angry and very judgmental. And you think you'd never say that to someone if their face was right in front of you. I imagine you might have had this experience as well. If you think, well, where people criticize you face to face, they might still be critical, but they wouldn't shout and scream and become irate in the way that people do online where there's just a keyboard between you and the other person. Absolutely right. And and nor... Would they, uh, if they were sitting in a jury, jump to the conclusions that they jump to when they're sitting on their 
uh, you know, in front of their computer. We, we are, our, our sense of biblical standards of evidence and justice goes completely out the window and we go with our inclination. I'll give you again another example. When uh, word got out that I had asked Tullian Chavidian to, to write uh, the foreword for this book, and he did, and he did an amazing job, uh, I got all sorts of horrible accusations and, and how terrible it was for me to use him because of his own scandals and because uh, you know he is supposedly a known antinomian someone who denies the importance of being obedient to the law of God. I'm so pleased you explained what that word meant, because I was just <laughs> can I remember what that one means? I wasn't sure if I could. <laughs> I, I, I'm, uh, I, I know that it's important and helpful uh, not to just drop that word. But <laughs> that's, the, that's the accusation against him. And, you know, people are coming at me again on the Internet. Why, you know, how dare you use this horrible antinomian uh, to write your forward? And I said, uh can you show me something that he said that was antinomian? Oh, it's all over the internet. It's all over the internet. Everybody knows. I said, great. So if it's all over the internet and everybody knows, it shouldn't be any trouble for you to find something. <laughs> well, I'm not going to do your research for you. <laughs> right. I'm going to make a public accusation. And when you ask for evidence, I'm going to say, no, you're supposed to find the evidence. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, but that's what we do. Uh, it's, I mean, you, you rightly say that we haven't figured out as Christians how to live in this age of the internet. And it's absolutely true. But the, but what I want us to get is, and it's horrible and destructive that we haven't, it is the devil's playground, whether or not it's Ashley Madison or porn or whether it is attack blogs, uh, it doesn't matter. It is the devil's playground and we need to learn not only to be careful about what we're saying, we need to be careful about what we're listening to. Mm. I do want to move on and talk about other aspects of your life and ministry, and I promise we will. But just just one more one more question on this, and because I, I can imagine some people hearing this and they think I I completely understand the distinction you're making about you're not an ordained minister, and completely understand you know you have been through repentance, and we we you know quite rightly don't know the ins and outs of your life, and you can't prove uh, that you didn't have a drink but we take your word for it that you have and all that stuff and I imagine a lot of people feeling complete sympathy on all those points and yet I can also imagine people feeling at the same time look there are other careers out there I mean you don't have to write a Christian book you could you could get a, a different job and does there just come a point in ministry where because your name has been associated with things even things that you have repented for even things that you have been restored from nevertheless there are other options for you and does there not come a point where wisdom would just say i'm just going to back away a bit from the christian world and i can still serve god without having the public facing ministry of books um or even of twitter do you have any sympathy with that point of view or, or, or would you just say that you feel completely confident in the direction you're, you're heading in at the moment Oh, well, I think there's a, another option. I, I do have sympathy for that perspective, and I feel completely confident in the direction that I'm headed. Uh, I understand the what the animus behind that perspective and the fear and the concern. My concern is the message that that perspective sends and what I want to do and uh, what I'm trying to do is to steward my failures. 
when Jesus told Peter, look, you're going to deny me three times. Peter, and, and when you're done, what I want you to do is go back to fishing. It's not what he said. He didn't say, when you're done, I want you to find some invisible job somewhere. What he said was, when you're done, I want you to strengthen the brethren. Mm. Uh, when David committed adultery and then committed murder to cover it up, God didn't say, you know, David, it's time for you to get out of the public eye. I know you've written these Psalms. I know you've uh, led your nation, but it's time for you to, to step down and go uh, find something quiet and invisible to do. When Abraham uh, lied about his wife, God didn't give up on him. Here's the thing. I, I'm not wanting special favors because of who my father is. What I want is to proclaim the name of my elder brother. I want to be able to say to the world, you know, Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the chief. And I believe that sinners are called to take that message out. And that those who would say, you know, what we need is nice, well-behaved people who haven't committed these grievous public sins to carry that message out. Those people have not read their Bibles because that is precisely who did that in Scripture. I think it's fair to say, perhaps even an understatement, to say you have experienced a lot of pain in your life. I mean, I appreciate you're saying that, that some things have happened in your life are your fault and you've admitted responsibility, but there's been other moments in life that have not been your fault at all and have also caused huge amounts of pain. We haven't uh, yet spoke uh, about about how, very sadly, your daughter and your wife, you've both experienced the death of your, your first wife and one of your daughters as well. We haven't talked about that yet, but that's that's pain of another kind, isn't it? What sustained you and what brought you through that level of, of deep pain? Well, it is it it is a, a very different thing, but you know there are many things that are, there's a great deal of overlap. What sustains me in both instances is the grace of God. What sustains me in both instances is the conviction. And this is a, a, a reformed thing. The conviction that God is at work in all of these things, doing the glorious work of remaking me into the image of Christ. Now, on those things where it's my sins and it is my fault, we, of course, we have to be careful, as Paul warns us, that we don't sin all the more that grace might abound. But being careful that we don't sin all the more that grace might abound doesn't undo the fact that where sin is, grace abounds that much more. And we need to be celebrating and believing and being driven to the glorious truth that our Heavenly Father loves us despite our sins because of what Jesus has done. That is, what, what I'm saying is this. I'm convinced, not, you know, we talked earlier about Reformed people affirming the doctrine of total depravity, but not having no concept of their own sinfulness. That's not just a Reformed problem. We've got an entire church who believes 
that Jesus came to save nice, clean, well-behaved people who have little sins. And after they get saved, their sins will get smaller. Now, I believe in sanctification. I believe that we progress and we become, even in this life, more like Jesus. But I also believe that that process has its ups and downs. And that, again, throughout Scripture, we see post-conversion profound and grievous sins by God's people all the time. And I don't mention that so that everybody will say, well, we need to let R.C. back into the limelight because he made a good point about what the Bible says. I mention that so that everybody who has grievous sin will know and rejoice in their father's have in their father's love for them and not doubt it my father in heaven when i got in that car or when i went to that website or when i tipped those bottles my heavenly father did not love me any less than he will love me forever. He didn't love me any less than the moment I came to Christ. He didn't love me any less than he will love me when I am fully sanctified and glorified. And that is the message of the gospel. Absolutely. I don't know what and what ways God will allow me to spread that message. One way was to write this book about my life with my father. And I wanted this book to be the message about the grace of God. The book begins with my arrest. The book ends with the last conversation I had with my father. And I say conversation loosely. He was in a coma. And I was alone with him in his hospital room. And I said this to him. I said, Dad, you know how much it's meant to me all my life to have you be proud of me. And it's certainly true that when you are proud of me, it gives me great joy. But I want you to understand as you are going to your reward that my desire for you to be proud of me is less about making me feel good and more about making you feel good. I am so grateful for you as a father that I want you to know that you've been a great father. Now, here I am in this place as you're dying still or again under a cloud. And you may be thinking, oh, my stars, I stink as a father. My son has these scandals all over him. You may be thinking that. And you may think that you have let me down, that you've let God down. But here's what you need to know. Your job, Dad, was not to lead me to be a great man. Your job was to tell me about the one great man who could rescue me from my sins. And that's what you did. And that's what I want this book to be, a celebration of the work of Christ and God's grace. Mm. We started by talking about that Christian upbringing that you had. And I imagine this this must be a bit of a difficult question to con- consider. Is what 
would your life look like if you hadn't have had faith in your life at all? Because I guess so much of what we've spoken about, these things are so intermingled, isn't it? Your story and your faith and God just being at the centre of your life. But do you ever wonder what would have happened? What, what would my life be like if I hadn't have grown up in a Christian environment, if I'd, you know, at this point in your life, if you hadn't encountered Christ? Oh, only in a uh, nightmare. I mean, I just cannot imagine uh, what my life would be like apart from Christ. You know, it's it's it, and it's it's not measured by what sins would I have fallen into, or how much worse might they have been. Uh, what it's measured by is going through my days in a Romans one drama where I know when I'm honest with myself that my heavenly father is rightly and profoundly displeased with me. I couldn't bear that because the, because I would own it. I would deserve it. It would be mine. And, and how that works out, whether or not he, you know, whether or not I'm living a comfortable, happy, prosperous, healthy life doesn't matter. If God is angry at me, I can't have peace and I can't have joy. Which is why, again, in the midst of my sin, in the midst of my scandal, I can be at peace because my Heavenly Father loves me because of Jesus. What does the average day look like for you now? Is it is it writing? Is it preparing Bible studies? What what does day to day life look like for you at the moment? Uh, it's a lot of different things. Um, I have some freelance writing work that I'm doing that is uh, behind the scenes and uh, pr- principally invisible, which is perfectly fine. It's an opportunity to use the skills that God has given me. Uh, it involves uh, you know, doing interviews like this and, and, and hoping to promote, uh, my book, it involves thinking about, uh, and, and, and seeking opportunities for the future. Um, I have, uh, you know, the desire to continue you know, to find another opportunity to teach, uh, at the college level if possible, as I've done in the past, I've really enjoyed that. And again, don't feel like, uh, I've disqualified myself from that kind of work. And so, uh, you know, my days are, are happily at home. I, I don't have an office that I have to go to, um, but they're also busy happily. I mean, I hesitate to ask this in one sense, but at the other, I can just imagine people wondering, coming back to that question about disqualification, because we have talked a lot about the, the distinction between, like you say, uh, being a pastor, and clearly, you know, you haven't said that you're looking to do that, certainly in the short term, but you are talking about going back into into teaching. Is there is there anything in, to your mind on a kind of biblical level that would be disqualification for the kind of work that you're doing now? I mean, does that exist or is this just a separate biblical category where the Bible only talks about disqualification for pastoral ministry working in a church? Does that make sense? Yeah, it sure does. I would say this, that um, being under the discipline of your local church and being directed not to do X kind of work or Y kind of work uh, would be a disqualification. Uh, 
but that would be it. Again, the whole point is we have to be under authority. And even if I'm not ordained, I am under the authority of the elders of my church. And if the elders of my church are comfortable with me, say, teaching in a college or publishing this book or uh, doing this interview, then it's on them. Are we talking really about a bit of a cultural shift that you think needs to happen in the Christian world and the evangelical world, a cultural shift where, on the one hand, we do all talk a lot about God's grace and God's forgiveness. And on the other hand, have we got this negative culture of throwing stones at people? And is, is that the kind of culture that you are, I guess, kind of campaigning to see changed? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, <laughs> I, and I need to... I want to be careful that it not come across as me crying, saying, let me in, let me in, let me in. Uh, but I want to be bold and say, Jesus saves sinners, Jesus saves sinners, Jesus saves sinners. I, again, I know the burdens. I, I, I put it this way. I genuinely do not believe, and this could, I could be wrong, but I genuinely do not believe that I am a completely different kind of sinner than anyone else on the planet. I believe that the grace that I need is the same grace everybody else needs. It's certainly possible, if not likely, that there are other people who are more godly and obedient than I am. But we all need God's grace. Uh, uh, you know, the saying, uh, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And the temptation... When Jesus gives us the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, you know, there's a reason for that. The reason he gives us that story is because we're prone to being the Pharisee there. The reason he gives us the story of the prodigal son is less because we're prone to be the prodigal son, more because we're prone to be the elder brother. We have this pride inside of us that comes directly from the root of pride, which is the devil himself, where we go around thinking, well, I may be a sinner, but I'm not that kind of sinner. I may be a sinner, but I'm not like that guy. And that is nothing different than I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. Right. I have to be careful. I have to be careful and not take the position, well, I thank you, Lord, I'm not like other men because I believe in grace and they don't. I believe in forgiveness and they don't. I have you know, a, a, a right understanding of the scope of your grace and they have a tiny little understanding of it. I don't want to do that either. Right. But I do want all of us to grow in our understanding, again, that God saves sinners. Sure. My thanks to R.C. Sproul Jr. for coming on the show today. And my thanks to you for listening. It's been great to have you with us. I hope you enjoyed that interview. A little bit of a different one this afternoon on Premier Christian Radio, hearing a Christian leader really talk about their sin, their struggles, uh, things that have gone incredibly wrong in their life. I was grateful to R.C. for opening up about the difficult points in life as much as his successes. 
If you enjoyed hearing that and you want to check out more interviews, there's two things you can do. The first is check out the Profile podcast. We have an archive of well over 100 interviews with leading Christians from around the world and in many different walks of life. Check it out at premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile or simply search for The Profile wherever you normally get your podcast from. That's the first thing you can do. The second thing you can do is subscribe to the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. Every month we feature a brand new exclusive interview. Past interviewees include the Archbishop of Canterbury, Francis Chan, Jackie Pullinger and many more. We've got some fantastic interviews coming up for you in print in Premier Christianity magazine. Why not get yourself a free sample copy of the brand new edition? You can have it absolutely free. There's no obligation to subscribe. Simply go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample, type your details in and we'll send you a magazine completely free. That's all we've got time for on the show today. Thanks again for joining me, and we will see you next time.